You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be finding out how arsenic in drinking water is affecting cardiovascular health in Bangladesh. So it has been estimated that more than 50 million people in Bangladesh have been exposed to greater than 10 ppb and uh, 35 million have been exposed to more than 50 ppb. And how good is the advice available for pregnant women if they want to travel? Well, when we came to write this review, we were surprised at how little there was. The Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists and the American Congress have recently published guidelines on air travel in pregnancy. But if you want to look at advising women on travel in pregnancy more broadly, there was very little. But before that, I'm joined by David Payne, BMJ.com editor, who's here with his pick of what's online this week. Hi, David. Hello, Duncan. So uh, we've got our head-to-head for a start. Yes, about a week ago now, we published a head-to-head, should the law on assisted dying be changed? And on the back of that, we ran a bmj.com poll, as we often do in these cases. It did particularly well, actually. There were, um, I think, more than 400 votes altogether. 69% thought the law should not be changed, and uh, 31% thought it should. Obviously, this issue always arouses lots of um, emotions, and um, predictably, we've had quite a few rapid responses to both the yes argument and the no argument. So I would urge readers, to uh, to look at those makes a very interesting read. The one that struck my eye was from a consultant paediatrician from New Zealand called Paul Taylor, who um, has just watched his 91-year-old father slowly die of dehydration. And he concludes that how much better for him and for all of us it would have been if he had received his five days of coma-inducing medications in one single dose at the outset. This is not an issue for the ethicists and pontificators of this world. It's an issue for the patient, the family and their doctor. We need a sensible framework which allows us to do better. So obviously there's other viewpoints on there, but I think it's a interesting, peop- interesting thing to send readers to, to look at. Absolutely. And you've got an update for us about the raft of websites we have. Yes, we're obviously developing things all the time here at the BMJ group, and we have a new careers website. The BMJ careers is obviously hugely popular. We have lots of jobs on there. It was due for a redesign. It had one a few years ago now. The new one has lots more visible news on it, links to jobs, links to careers advice. So I would urge listeners to go and look at that, careers.bmj.com, and it'd be great to have your feedback on that. It's only just gone live, so obviously if you have any comments about it, do let us know. There'll be links there about how to respond. Great. And uh, something that's coming up and will be uh, in the news, I'm sure, in the next few weeks yes. is peer review. Yes, it is. I mean, there are, there are claims that the peer review system is in crisis. And if you look on BMJ blogs, that topic is often discussed and how social networks are now being used. Is this the new peer review? So the Parliamentary Science and Technology Select Committee here in the UK is looking into peer review and this allegation that it's in crisis. I think it's been triggered very much by um, the leaked emails from the University of East Anglia, and uh, which sort of cast doubt on you know the climate change evidence and also the retracted Lancet paper by Andrew Wakefield on the link between MMR and autism. So I think that's the sort of frame for why the MPs are looking at this and I believe that um, Fiona Godley, our editor, is actually giving evidence to the committee next week and we've also submitted some uh, a submission to it. But um, we have a story that went online on bmj.com yesterday from Adrian O'Dowd which uh, reports on the first uh, oral evidence session and um, I was just struck by one quote in there, which is from Robin Ronald Lasky, who's vice president of the Academy of Medical Sciences, and he was giving evidence. And he says, I think the engine is misfiring rather than stalling completely. So he's um, obviously not convinced that... Uh, um, that the peer review system is in crisis and um, you know MPs also seem to be sort of worried that uh, fraudulent or incorrect papers 
damage the peer review system. And I think Professor Lasky replied there that actually it's not really damaging the peer review system per se, but obviously public perception about the role of science suffers as a result. So I think that's a very interesting debate to watch and we'll have it obviously online on bmj.com in the coming weeks. Great. Thank you very much, David. Thank you. Now, the problems associated with arsenic in drinking water have been known for some time. But new research published on bmj.com provides data that quantifies the risk for cardiovascular disease. To discuss the paper, I'm joined on the phone by Dr. Yu Chen from the Department of Environmental Medicine at New York University School of Medicine, one of the authors of the paper. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Chen. Uh, You're welcome, Duncan. Just for a start, could you set up how big an issue um, arsenic in drinking water? Um, You talk about Bangladesh here. um, So how big a problem is it there? And how about other countries around the world? Um, Arsenic is a natural element in the Earth's crust, and therefore many populations rely on groundwater for drinking sources may be exposed to elevated levels of arsenic uh, in many parts in the world, such as South America, Chile, Argentina, in China, Mexico, Western U.S., and um, as well as uh, New Hampshire and Maine. Mm-hmm. The WHO and the U.S. standard for arsenic drinking water is 10 ppb. And in the U.S., it has been estimated that more than 13 million people might have been exposed to public water or private water supply with arsenic more than 10 ppb. And uh, in Bangladesh, uh, where 95% of the individuals rely on groundwater, the problem is more extensive. So it has been estimated that more than 50 million people in Bangladesh have been exposed to greater than 10 ppb, and uh, 35 million have been exposed to more than 50 ppb. That's a big problem in in these individual countries. So worldwide, we're talking about a lot of people who are exposed. Yes. In an editorial accompanying this, one of the, uh, the editorialists says... Uh, Arsenic is an astonishingly toxic element and it can cause a plethora of health effects. Could you just tell us what some of these effects are? I want to also stress that the the exposure level in the US and uh, most of the most of the developed countries is in general low. However, in Bangladesh it could be uh, it is moderate and some in some area the exposure is quite high. Okay. Um and chronic exposure to high levels of arsenic from drinking water um that is about uh, more than 500 ppb in general, has been associated with higher risk of skin cancer and also internal cancers, including lung cancer, kidney cancer, bladder cancer, and liver cancer. And uh, these levels of high exposure have been also related to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, pulmonary and neurological abnormality. Um, arsenic has been classified as a group 1 carcinogen uh, by the IARC uh, mm. based on uh, sufficient evidence um, in human study, uh, mainly for skin cancer. Um, however, the evidence of the effects at moderate or low level for both cancer and cardiovascular disease is not well established. So you were looking into that further. What were you? What was your research question? We aim to look at whether there's a dose-response relationship between arsenic exposure and cardiovascular disease, and also subtype of cardiovascular disease mortality. 
And in addition, we want to evaluate whether the risk is greater among smokers. There were several previous studies that look at cancer and found that the risk associated with arsenic is greater among smokers. However, uh, there was no study done regarding cardiovascular disease. So then, uh, how did you carry out your research? The study is a part of an ongoing cohort study in Bangladesh. We recruited around 12,000 participants and tested arsenic in the household wells as well as uh, individual urine samples. Mm -hmm. And we also collected information on lifestyle factors such as smoking habits using questionnaire. And during the follow-up of about uh, seven years, we ascertained mortality data and cost-specific mortality. When you, you examined your data, what did you find? We found that there is a dose-response relationship between arsenic exposure and overall cardiovascular disease mortality. In addition, uh, individuals who were ever smokers experienced higher risk of heart disease due to arsenic exposure, even at a moderate level. When doing this kind of study, obviously there are various confounding factors. So how were you able to account for some of them? We have pretty comprehensive information on all the lifestyle uh, factors. So in analysis, we were able to control potential confounding factors. And uh, in fact, um, individuals' choice of wealth is pretty much determined by geographic convenience. So they don't really choose uh, walls depending on their uh, lifestyle factors. So you find there then that there is this dose-response link between arsenic and cardiovascular disease, which is then further exacerbated by smoking. So that seems to give quite a, a strong public health message. Uh-huh. So uh, this, this finding may reinforce drinking water standards, um, and also the higher risk observed in smokers suggests that removal of either smoking uh, or arsenic may lead to a more than expected reduction in heart disease mortality among smokers who, who, who are exposed to arsenic. So uh, certainly future uh, research needs to confirm the association, but uh, there is potential important uh, public health message and um, there's a slight increased mortality, but because so many people are exposed to uh, elevated levels of arsenic in their drinking water, were you able to work out how much that may um, cause excess death in, in Bangladesh or, or even worldwide? Uh, yes, because uh, cardiovascular disease contributes um, a substantial disease burden worldwide. So even a, a small increase in the risk that is in, in the exposed population could could uh, contribute a large number of deaths. So based on our observed estimates, about 29 or um, 29 of deaths from heart disease in the in our study population can be attributed to to arsenic concentration um, at the moderate level, moderate or high level. Okay. Um, and then you said that was 15 million people are exposed to that in Bangladesh. So yes. that just shows you uh, how many excess deaths there could be. That research is now available for free online on bmj.com. Requests for advice from pregnant women who wish to travel are increasing. This prompted a recent clinical review on the subject. Earlier this week, I was joined in the studio by one of the review's authors, Lucy Chappell from the Division of Women's Health, King's College London School of Medicine. This must be something that's asked a lot of you and of GPs. Um, 
You've written this clinical review because you thought there's maybe a, a dearth of information out there. Where is it that people, uh, doctors, patients, could find out good information about the risks of travelling when pregnant? Well, when we came to write this review, we were surprised at how little there was. The Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists and the American Congress have recently published guidelines on air travel in pregnancy. But if you want to look at advising women on travel in pregnancy more broadly, there was very little. I can't tell you how often I'm asked this question now in antenatal clinic, and I know from talking to my colleagues that they're being asked it quite frequently. Mm. Pregnant women seem to be travelling for several reasons. Some are, the majority are travelling for um, tourism, for pleasure, to go for a holiday. Sometimes it's their last fling before the baby comes, uh, and that's not unusual. Um, Some women are travelling for work, and they may be flying fairly frequently. And including some of those women do quite long haul quite regularly. And then we see a third group of women who are going back home for perhaps an extended period of several weeks or several months. Uh, Where I work at St Thomas's, we see women going home to mainland Europe or to Africa particularly uh, for a period of care during their pregnancy. Um, Just to go back a little bit, I mean, you said that there was a bit of evidence from, from different colleges. But is there any good trials about you know, the safety of, of flying or of, of different problems that people may encounter if they travel abroad? In one of the few meta-analyses on this area on the risks of air travel in pregnancy and the effects on outcomes such as miscarriage or preterm labour, the authors of the meta-analysis comment that the studies are of very mixed quality. There doesn't seem to be a huge amount of research in this area. You might say, well, the global burden is not huge but it's certainly a growing problem Mm. and I think we're at a point where we're basing our advice on not great evidence and there's a gap that could be usefully filled. Mm. Do you find women are generally quite open to your advice or are some very determined to travel even when it's maybe contraindicated? Some are quite determined to travel and we know that some women go. Uh, It depends whether or not they require a letter from me. Um, but I very much try and work with the woman to explain why, what the risks are. And usually it's just a case that she hasn't actually considered considered the risks. Um, many women are at low risk and will be safe to travel. And it shouldn't be an alarmist message. But it's really trying to focus on those women where it wouldn't be a good idea. As with all things, our risk stratification in pregnancy is not always great. Uh, and that's one of the a, a much more general problem with pregnancy that all of us who do research in obstetrics are trying to address. Um, but it's a question of considering the risks sensibly, trying to minimise them by choosing a safe time, to, the safest time to travel, which is usually in the second trimester, and uh, and then enjoying your holiday if you can when you get there. Mm. Having written this clinical review, do you have a bottom line for GPs? Is it very individual or is there are there some sort of general overall things that they should say? I think it is actually very individualised because no two pregnant women are the same, both in terms of how many weeks pregnant they are, where they are at that point in their pregnancy and how that pregnancy's gone, what might be about to evolve over the next two to three weeks during the travel period and what are the, what else is going on. So it's difficult to give any hard and fast advice. Perhaps a useful way to think about it would be, how is this pregnancy going? Has a previous pregnancy been straightforward? And are there any other medical conditions? And if the answers to all of those are straightforward, then usually a woman will be able to travel. 
But if you've got concerns and you need to look in more detail or you feel that you're not able to make a specialist opinion, then I think pregnant women should be referred on rather than a GP feeling that they have to take that additional responsibility in in signing and saying that they're happy for the woman to fly. And again, you can read that clinical review online on bmj.com. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.